You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So on Christmas Eve in 1223, St. Francis of Assisi recreated the scene of Christ's birth for a special Christmas Eve mass inside a cave in Italy. And he invited his fellow friars and townspeople to come and behold the infant Jesus. And speaking afterwards about that event, he said this, I wanted to do something that would recall the memory of that child who was born in Bethlehem to see with bodily eyes the inconveniences of his infancy and how he lay in the manger, and how the ox and the donkey stood by. It was uh, well-received and soon would be replicated all around the world, thus giving the start to uh, nativity scenes. And um, since that time, there have been um, thousands upon thousands of live reenactments um, that, that, that gave way to like hand-carved sets. And when you fast forward the now 800 years, Um, Nativity scenes have become standard Christmas decorations right alongside your Christmas trees and lights, wreaths and garlands, ornaments, and even elf on a shelf. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you have nativity scenes set up right now? Okay, don't be shy. All right. Um, In homes across America, you are more than likely to find uh, nativity scenes. And there's usually, uh, you know, a stable of some kind with some, uh, maybe some fake hay in there. There's a donkey. There's some sheep. There's an angel or two. There's some shepherds. Of course, there's Mary. There's Joseph. And there's baby Jesus in a manger all wrapped up in swaddling cloths. And usually, standing to the side are three men holding gifts, wearing crowns. That sound familiar to you? That's your basic standard uh, nativity scene. Now, those three guys on the side have been made famous by the popular Christmas carol, We Three Kings. Now, there are actually a lot of historical and biblical inaccuracies with the modern day nativity scene and that song in particular. And I'll point some of those out as we walk through our text this morning. But the biggest inaccuracy is how nativity scenes conflate or combine two different sections of scripture. They take uh, Luke chapter 2 with the the birth of Jesus, and then they take Matthew chapter 2, what we're talking about today, and they just combine them as if those two events um, happened on um, the same day. And so they combine the day of Jesus's birth and the visit of the wise men. In other words, They combine angels we have heard on high with we three kings, and they put them all together. What they do is they take the first two years of Jesus' life and make it seem as if those two events happened on the same day. And the result is that the three magi are kind of extras. They're just kind of there um, on the side. They become forgetful. Uh, They're they're sort of like extras, just part of the, the ensemble cast. But my goal this morning is not to pick apart modern nativity scenes. Um, I want you to keep your nativity scene. I have one. I love ours. It's, it's displayed right there on the piano. Uh, it, it's great. That's not the goal this morning. But the goal is we want to revisit that nativity scene this morning and parse out those stories so that we don't lose the contribution of the Magi. 
Because I think the Magi offer something to the Christmas story that we don't want to miss. So if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12. Now, um, if you don't have a Bible, like you don't own a Bible and would like one, we have some on the back welcome table. Uh, they're, they're nice hardcover ESV uh, 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 black Bibles. That they're great. Um, that would be our gift to you. We would love nothing more if you walked out today knowing that you have your own um, copy um, of God's Word. That would be our gift to you today. Um, um, and as always, we will also have um, the words on the screen. Now, in this scene, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we're going to see three responses to Christ, this newborn king. There's going to be three different ways that people choose to respond to Jesus. And Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12, invites us to consider how we will respond to Jesus. Because um, there, there, there's something going on here. In Matthew's gospel, it's, it's kind of genius the way he's set it up. He's, he's gone through uh, the genealogy of Jesus. He's going, okay, this is where he comes from. This is his um, pedigree. He, he gives us the scene um, uh, of Joseph, uh, reminding us that this, this new um, child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And then we have the very first responses to Jesus. And what we'll find is that these responses are going to play out over and over and over over again throughout, the, uh, throughout Matthew's gospel, such that if you were to just keep on reading and go from uh, the rest of chapter 3 into verse, uh, chapter 28, you'll see um, this is how people respond to Jesus in one of these three ways. So first, we're going to see hostility. One of the ways that you can respond to Jesus is with hostility. Um, second, we'll see indifference. One of the ways that people respond to Jesus is just by completely ignoring him altogether and third and finally, we'll see um, the appropriate response to Jesus, which is worship. So here's our three responses. Look with, them, with me. We'll see hostility, indifference, and worship. So let's dig in to see our first response of hostility. Let's look again at chapter 2, verse 1. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So... In the months after uh, the birth of Jesus, we find that Mary and Joseph make their home in Bethlehem. So they, they don't quickly leave and head back um, to Nazareth. We see them um, establishing a residence there in Bethlehem. And so at this point in the narrative, um, the choir of angels have left. Okay, the shepherds are back to doing what shepherds do. And Mary and Joseph are doing what all new moms and dads do. They're enjoying their baby and they're trying to figure out how to get them to sleep. That's what, like, like, that is parenting. The first few days is all you're trying to figure out is like, how can we like love this child, feed this child and get them to sleep so we can get some sleep. That's what they're doing. And Matthew gives us some historical context of what's happening in that moment. At this point, Herod is on the throne. Now this is uh, Herod the Great. And if you look back in history, you'll see he ruled in Judea as part of the Roman Empire from 37 BC until he died in 4 BC. And he was known for two things. First, um, his extensive building projects. 
Um, he was the one who um, expanded and renovated uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, he didn't think that God's design was adequate enough, so he wanted to make it bigger and more grand and expanded the, the temple mount, the, the, the wall, where there's you know, still remnants of that wall there uh, today. And he expanded um, the temple and he, um, he built all sorts of other projects. He loved architecture. Uh, and so he wanted to be known because when you build something um, you know, out of stone, it, it kind of lasts even after you're gone. People will walk by and go, look what Herod the Great built. What a great man he was. And he wanted to leave a lasting impression. The second thing he was known for was his extensive cruelty. Um, Herod was uh, terrible. Under any version of the DSM, he would be labeled a paranoid sociopath. Um, he had lots of wives. Um, he murdered his favorite one, several of his own sons and other relatives because he perceived that they might be uh, plotting to, uh, to, to overtake him uh, and his rule. So he was, he was constantly worried about um, conspiracy theories and people rising up to remove him from uh, the throne. In his mind, there was always someone plotting to undermine him as king. And so next, Matthew introduces us to these wise men um, from the east. Wise men, as it's translated in the ESV, is the Greek term magi, M-A-G-I. And uh, this term referred to these sort of priestly astrologers. So they were astrologers in the sense that they would look to the stars to discern what was happening and going on um, in the world. They would look at the patterns in the skies and, and they would make and deduce all sorts of things from uh, looking at those, uh, those patterns in the sky. And they were, they were also kind of considered like priestly sages. Like you would go to them and ask for advice on what you were supposed to do um, in your life. And so they would be consulted for wisdom and advice that they were discerning from the stars. So they weren't kings, okay? So the song, We Three Kings, it's just wrong, okay? It's We Three Magi, We Three Astrologers, okay? They're not kings. Um, they're astrologers who give this priestly, sagely wisdom as they look up at the stars. Now, in the ancient world, it was commonly believed that the stars contained wisdom and direction for life. So they were highly esteemed people because they were able to help you discern what was going on um, in the world. So they would study and give attention to the patterns in the sky. Now, if you know anything about uh, Judaism and the law, um, astrology is a big no-no. Okay, it, it's like part of the dark arts. Um, the, this would be like Professor Snape's area. Okay, this is not good. This is not good. They're pagans. They're unclean. They would not be allowed in the temple. These are outsiders, not insiders. Outsiders, not insiders. It is forbidden in Jewish law. Now, we don't know specifically where they're from. The text just tells us somewhere east of um, Israel. Now, some possible locations are Arabia, Babylon, and Persia um, due to the types of gifts that they gave, uh, the, 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 the fact that those are, uh, they're east and they're also geographically um, proximate, and astrology was common practice um, in those cultures. Another thing is we're not told how many wise men there are. Um, we've, we've often said that there were three because there were three gifts, but if you read the text, it just says wise men from the east came. So um, it, it could have been three, but we simply don't know. 
Um, I, I think it's probably more than three, or at least the entourage is more than three, because typically traveling in the ancient world was a dangerous thing. And you would want to bring protection. The, the, the kind of gifts they're giving are costly and expensive. You would have been vulnerable for long stretches on open road uh, to being robbed and being um, killed. I mean, there's no police at this time. And so you would usually, if you're traveling with expensive things, come with quite an entourage. And also, when they arrive to, uh, to King Herod's palace, um, he's troubled by it. It causes a stir in the city, and I'm not quite sure that just three random dudes walking in would have caused such a stir. I think these guys, as they paraded in, people noticed. They, they saw something and were wondering, okay, why, why is this large entourage coming in um, to our city? They're clearly not from here, and so what are they doing here? In any case... The Magi have seen something that um, grabs their attention. Now look with me at verse 2. And they say, where is he? This is the Magi. They come to Herod. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So God has given these Magi a sign from creation. Now we don't exactly know um, what it is, but, we, but what we can tell you is that it's a supernatural phenomenon, meaning this is something um, that, uh, that God is directing and superintending. Even if it's um, a comet or another star or even maybe an angel shining brightly, Matthew's point is clear, that this star-like object appears in order to guide the magi to Jesus. So even if it's a natural object, God is using it for his purposes in order to lead this group of men to Jesus. First, to get their attention, right? These are guys who are professional stargazers. So they would have to see something that would like get their attention. It can't just be what's normally happening in the sky. So God uses this, this either natural or supernatural object in order to, for them to go, hey, something is going on, and then to stir in their hearts to want to follow this thing um, all the way to Jesus. So this star appears to them in the east and leads these outsiders to search for the one who has been born king of the Jews. Now the star leads them eastward and they come to the capital city uh, to the current king. Now, why would you do that? Uh, if you're looking for a king and you're from the, uh, and you're an outsider, where would you go? Well, you would go to the palace because uh, kings give birth to kings and important people are born in the palace. So they, uh, the star is leading them east. They, they, they see it's headed to Jerusalem in that area and they naturally go to uh, Jerusalem to the king. Verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, why would Herod be troubled? Well, he hasn't welcomed a new child into this world, right? So if he had ha just had a baby and they said, hey, we're here to welcome the new king, he might have been like, yeah, okay, I have an heir to uh, the throne. But we also know how he felt about his own children because he killed a lot of them. So he probably would have been troubled at that anyway. So he's not welcomed a new child. Uh, he was suspicious of his children. And at the arrival of the Magi, uh, Herod becomes very troubled. He hears king, he hears Jews, and he's going, he's not talking about, they're not talking about me. And so all of that, um, that, that unsettledness, that anxiety, that conspiracy theory that's, that's, that's inside of Herod, all of that starts to bubble up to the surface, and he is troubled. He perceives this as another threat to his throne. 
These magi are not here to worship him as king, and therefore they're here to worship someone else. And whoever that someone else is, is a threat and a challenge to him. And so he's disturbed and determined to eradicate any threat to his power. Verse 4, so Herod assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Okay, so he gets chief priests and scribes. Who are these people? The chief priests are the, are the priests who um, oversee all of the inner workings of the temple. So uh, if you are a Jew, you don't get to go and make sacrifices um, on your own. You bring the sacrifice, you give it to the priests, and the priests do all the sacrificial stuff. And they're, they're there to help mediate your relationship um, with God. Very, very important in um, and Jewish life. And so uh, they helped manage all things related to your uh, religious and relationship with God. The scribes are experts in the law of Moses. They are the scholars. They are professional copyists, okay? This is a time before the printing press and copy machines and digital age. If you want an extra copy of something, you have to write it out by hand. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to copy something, you likely make a lot of mistakes, right? Your, your eyes move, you, you miss a line, you miss a word. If you're like me, you misspell everything. But these are professionals. They're very, very, very good um, at what they do to make sure that they have accurate copies of the Word of God. And in so doing, they became guardians of the Word of God. They became, um, they, they had all of this memorized um, and they were experts in the law. So in other words, if there was anything in the scriptures that you wanted to know, they're just like human encyclopedias. They know everything about the scriptures. And so they were the teachers of the law. They were the copiers of the law. They knew the minutest details. In other words, Herod assembles a theological dream team. Okay, if there's anybody who's going to know the answer to this question, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Is there anything in all of the Old Testament that will give us some indication of where? Has God told us where we should be looking for the Messiah? And so he gathers this theological dream team together to see if there's any merit to what the Magi are saying, if they know where Christ, the Messiah, this new Savior King is supposed to be born. Now look what they say to him in verse 5. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. The prophet is Micah here. They're quoting and he says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, Bethlehem is not a particularly important city. It was the city where David was born, but, it, but it's not risen in prominence. And so this, this, uh, this prophecy is saying, listen, though you may not be uh, like have the glory and the prominence of say like Jerusalem, there will come a day when your importance rises. There's gonna come a day when uh, the Messiah is born in your humble town. And so without hesitation, the chief priests and scribes, they, they're able to answer this question. I mean, th this, is, uh, this is like simple for them. I mean, this is child's play for them. He, he assembles this dream team. He, they think, man, you're going to give us a really hard, difficult question. But this is just, this is a layup. This is, this is easy. And so Micah 5.2 clearly gives the answer. The Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now, notice this. 
Micah tells them uh, where the Messiah is to be born, and there's a detail uh, that, one notable detail is that the current king Herod was not born in Bethlehem in Judea. So Herod himself is Jewish, um, but this prophecy is saying, hey, Herod, um, it's not you. You're not the guy. It, it, it won't be you. And so um, Herod was born in Idumea, which was south of Judea, not in um, Judea. And his heritage, he can trace back to Esau. So Herod, he, he comes from the line of Esau. And if you know, um, that's not Jacob. Like if you're going if you, if to be in the Messiah, you need to have come through the line of promise. Now, interestingly enough, Matthew has done us a, a, a favor and traced out Jesus's genealogy just right before. So you can just look back and go, okay, does Jesus meet the qualifications? Okay, yes, he does. He's born from the line of promise. Does Herod meet the qualifications? No, he's not born from the line of promise because he traces his roots back to Esau. So Herod lacks both qualifications to be the Messiah. He's not from the line of promise and he was not born in Bethlehem. Translation, Herod is not the true king. Now, if you're Herod and you've got all that conspiracy theory stuff working, you've got these guys going, hey, we, uh, the king, the true king has been born. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem and he's gonna be from the line of David. Herod's going, okay, uh, you're definitely not talking about me. At best, Herod is a steward to the throne. He's not the king. So um, for my Lord of the Ring people, this is like Denethor from Lord of the Rings, okay? He's the steward of Gondor. If you're like, I don't remember his name. He's the ugly looking guy who has those two sons, uh, Boromir and Faramir, and he loves Boromir, right? And when Boromir dies, he's all upset and uh, he tries to, you know, uh, commit suicide, burn himself on a, on, a, on a pile. That's who it is. He is not the one true king. So what should have happened when Aragorn, who is the true king, when he shows up, Denethor should have said, it's not me. I'm just a placeholder. I've just been sitting in this throne uh, until the true king arrives. And then when he shows up, he should have said, We're, I'm so glad that you're here. You're the one true king. Now I'm going to step aside. That's what Herod should have done. He should have stepped aside once he realized the one true king has been born. But that is not what he's going to do. He's not thrilled at the potential that God has made good on his promise for a Messiah, for this long-awaited Savior King. No, he is troubled at the news. And right away, his treacherous mind begins to plot. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod lies to the Magi he pulls them aside secretly so that no one else knows what he's doing. And he basically says, listen, go and find him. Uh, and then when you find him, um, let me know exactly where you find him because I want to go worship him too. And because the Magi don't know Herod, um, they, they assume he's telling the truth. And so they leave going into Bethlehem with this plan to find the, uh, find the newborn king and then make their way back to Herod. However, as the events will unfold, we find that Herod wants to kill Jesus. In fact, in verse 12, at the end of the story, um, Scripture tells us that the Magi are warned by an angel not to go back to Herod and not to tell him the location because he is plotting to kill Jesus. 
Matthew 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So when the wise men don't come back, he goes, okay, I, I, I can play this game. And he just has all boys two and under killed in Bethlehem, thinking that'll surely wipe him out. However old Jesus is at this time, you know, some time has passed since his birth. It hasn't been quite two years. So he just says, if I kill all the two-year-olds, I'll definitely get Jesus in that, um, in that killing. And so that's Herod's plan to deal. Now, after Herod discovers that the Magi weren't coming back, He's furious, and we finally see his hand. And that edict of death goes out, and all boys two and under are put to death. I'm going to point out again, as we have in our Genesis and Exodus series, that the line of the serpent continues to uh, wage war against the seed of the woman. Herod stands in a long line of serpentine death slayers. So think about the pharaohs who killed Jewish boys. Think about, um, as you move on, the Philistines always waging war against um, Israel. The Amalekites. Uh, remember Haman in Persia who wanted to wipe out all of the Jews. There is, there is um, over and over and over in their history, there, there rises up these um, serpentine-like killers who want to destroy God's people. And so when Herod determines to kill the child, he sets this two-year window to ensure he gets him. And that's kind of how we know, uh, partly how we know that the Magi didn't arrive on the same day as um, the angels. So some time has passed. So as we know, um, good news is Herod never lays a hand on, uh, on Jesus because God sent an angel to Jacob to warn him of Herod's plan and directed them to flee to Egypt until Herod dies. So you put all that together, I think it's safe to say Herod's response is one of hostility. It's, it's opposition to Jesus. He's threatened by Jesus so much that it leads him to execute mass murder of children. Now this is hostility and opposition and fear on the extreme. And one of the tendencies when we hear something so extreme like that, because I'm guessing no one in here has plotted and executed a plan to kill, you know, a hundred two-year-old baby boys. It's easy for us to distance ourselves from Herod because we look at the, the, the extreme nature of his hostility and say, well, I, I've never done anything like that. Like, I've never done anything like that. So I've never, therefore, I've never been hostile towards Jesus. I've never been opposed to him. But friends, let me warn you that that would be a wrong way to look at this passage because uh, while it may be true that our hearts don't harbor the same like extreme nature of that kind of hostility the seedbed for that is in our hearts our hearts do not like the idea of a rival king because at the end of the day we really like being on the throne of our own lives we want to call the shots. We want to determine what's right. We want to do what we want to do without anybody telling us otherwise. Make no mistake about it. The birth of Jesus is the birth of the one true king. The one who has the right and the responsibility 
to give direction to all of us. And so the very notion and reality of his birth is a challenge to all rival kings who would sit on the throne of your heart. And he will suffer no rivals. Jesus will not share his throne with you. And that means you and I have a decision to make. If Jesus really will become the king of your life, then you need to abdicate the throne and bow to him. Tim Keller writes this. According to the Bible, the evil of the world ultimately stems from the self-centeredness and self-righteousness and self-absorption of every human heart. Every one of us wants the world to orbit around us and our needs and our desires. We do not want to serve God or our neighbor. We want them to serve us. In every heart, then, there is a little King Herod that wants to rule and that is threatened by anything that may compromise its omnipotence and sovereignty. Friends, don't be misled. The baby in the manger, the toddler in Bethlehem, is the true king of the universe, and he will not share his throne with you. Our hearts are naturally resistant to anyone who wants to come in and call the shots, tell us how to live, tell us what to do. And we're resistant and hostile to the one true king. That's all of us in this room. We may not uh, express it as flagrantly as Herod does, but all of us resist and oppose Jesus as our one true king. But by God's grace through faith, he will give you a new heart, a heart that is inclined towards him if you will repent of your hostility and opposition to him. When Herod was faced with this moment, a decision where he chose to respond, he could have said, I'm so thankful and glad the Messiah has been born. He could have actually wanted to genuinely go and worship the one true king, but he was resistant and he never repented. Don't be like Herod. Don't have a heart that is opposed and hostile to Jesus. He refused to acknowledge Jesus as king, and he responded with hostility. And the question of Matthew 12, or Matthew 2, rather, the contribution of this, this scene with the Magi is, how will you respond? Will you repent of your resistance to him? Notice I didn't say, do you have some resistance to him? That's assumed to be true because we are all born as sinners opposed to the things of God. So it's not a question of if you are resistant and hostile to him. The question is, will you repent of that hostility and will you acknowledge him as king? And that confession, that act of humility to recognize sin, when the, the Bible tells us that when we confess our sins, that God is faithful to forgive us and to give us a new heart. So the first response is, hostility. Second response is indifference. Now, the second response is easy to miss in this passage. In fact, I had read this passage for years and not noticed it until um, uh, preparing for this sermon. See, there's not a verse that says, and the religious leaders were indifferent to Jesus. But let's go back and look at their response. Verse three, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so is written by the prophet. So again, 
He assembles the, the varsity squad. Okay, this is not the JV team. These are the experts. Herod, his question about the birth location of the Messiah, it's easy. It's like asking a math professor to do a simple algebra problem. Like, like the, it's, so, it's so simple. They don't even really have to think. This question was rudimentary to them. They didn't need to pull out the scrolls. They didn't need to consult one another. The answer to that question came right off the top of the dome. And what's more is um, in this gathering of the chief priests and scribes, Herod brings the Magi in and tells them, listen, these guys have seen something, some kind of anomaly in the sky, and they have been tracing it from, uh, uh, from the west to the east, and that it's led them to here. Now say what you want about astrologers and their pagan ways. Uh, Clearly, these religious leaders would have disdained them. They would have thought that they were um, unclean outsiders, but... They would have acknowledged, but they are good at looking at patterns in the sky. Like say what you want about them. They know what's going on. Like this is what they do. And they've seen something that has grabbed their attention. They know what's supposed to be in the sky and what's not to be in the sky. So this summer, um, we were hanging out outside. We, uh, I think we had grilled some food and we're just hanging out in my backyard. And we saw uh, what appeared to be a string of lights moving across the sky. I mean, it looked, it, there was probably a dozen of them moving across the sky. Uh, it wasn't an airplane. It was not a constellation. It was moving. It was different. It was unlike anything we had ever seen before. And so quite naturally in that moment, we all thought, okay, UFOs, like that's what's happening right now. Like we're seeing it. Um, and so there was, there was a ton of talk about aliens and UFOs. So they're all talking about it. I start doing a quick Google search and I find out that it is uh, not UFOs, um, but it's the Starlink satellites from SpaceX. And so um, these, these satellites, uh, Elon Musk, you know, put them into the sky to provide internet to uh, like over 60 different um, countries. But here's the point. We looked up in the sky and it was very clear that's not supposed to be like, I, we've never seen that before. That is not Orion like on the loose. Like there's something else going on. Okay. So that's what the Magi are doing. They, they have noticed like, this is not normal. And the, the, the Jewish leaders would have at least recognized they know when something's not right. Now you might be wondering, why would these magi care about the birth of a Jewish king in the first place? And I'm glad you asked that question. No matter if the magi were from Arabia, Babylon, or Persia, all of these regions over the course of Israel's history had a lot of contact with, uh, with the Jews. And, and, and by contact with the Jews, they would have also had contact with their scriptures. If you read through the history of, uh, of the Jews, they have been conquered over and over and over again. And what happens is they usually um, take some of the best of the best of the people and they bring them into their, um, into their cities and with them come their scriptures. And because a lot of these, these groups are syncretistic, they're very welcoming of new religions. And so they want to go, hey, what is your religion? What is it all about? And they, they start to take their religious ideas and incorporate them into their, their pantheon of gods. And so what happens is all of these surrounding nations would have, been, would have had some level of understanding about these, um, these scriptures. Now, the, remember I said these magi are like priestly wisdom um, astrologers. So they're very concerned about matters of religion and stars. And there is a verse in the Bible in Numbers chapter 24 where Balaam gives this oracle and it goes like this. Look at this, Numbers 24, 17. 
a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So I just want you to put yourself in their position for a moment. You are an astrologer and a priest, kind of all wrapped up into one. You now have some contact with this, these, these Jewish uh, people and their scriptures, and you're reading through them to kind of see if there's anything that you might want to cherry pick out of it. This verse is going to stand out. Hey, there's something about a star in here. We're, like, we're the star guys, right? And so they see this verse and they're like, something is going to happen with a star according to Jewish uh, prophecy. So that's one they're going to they're gonna put that one on their, on their bulletin board. You know what I mean? We're going we're gonna to keep our eyes out for something like that. And it has something to do with this Jewish king that is one day going to be born. So when they see this, their minds go, wait a minute. Remember that thing on the bulletin board with the star and... And, and, and a scepter rising up, like that, that, there's something going on. And who else would have known about that verse? The chief priests and the scribes. So it's very likely these pagan wisdom astrologers have latched on to this verse in Numbers, which is, which is what God uses to stir in them to want to go and see what this celestial anomaly is all about. They, they start to wonder, is this star pointing to something special. And I don't want you to miss, in all of this, you have the guiding and um, supernatural hand of God who is um, doing something different in the sky, whatever it is. And he's speaking to these pagan astrologers in a language and a form that they understand that is going to naturally stir them, that is going to grab their attention and make them want to gather up all of these expensive resources, assemble an entourage, and start moving towards the east. And what's more is these chief priests and scribes who are experts in Old Testament uh, uh, history and the books of Moses and all the prophecies, not only would they have known about the location of Bethlehem as the place for the Messiah to be born, they would have known about that prophecy in Numbers 24 that somehow, some way, wrapped up in the arrival of the Messiah would be a star. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to kind of put yourself in that place for a moment and go, hey, like some things are starting to line up here. Something is going on. The Magi see it. They're pagans and yet they see it. And who doesn't see it? The chief priests and the scribes. How should they have responded? They should have at least been curious to make the six mile journey to Bethlehem. When I saw that, I was shocked. I thought maybe Bethlehem's really far and so they're, you know, they're kind of like, well, it's pretty far. I don't want to go. It's six miles. Like within a few hours, they could be there and see if it's true or not. And they don't bother to get up off the couch at all. They answer the question to Herod and they're like, you good? We're good. Okay, bye. And they just leave. They just leave. They disappear from the scene. Their silence and indifference is deafening. As quickly as they come, they leave. And that's the thing with indifference. It just flies under the radar, doesn't it? I mean, Herod's hostility is loud, it's flagrant, it's all over this text. And you're not wrong to read this text and, and, and walk away with like, man, Herod is insane, you know? Like that's true, that's happening right there. Where hostility and oppression are usually overt and obvious, indifference is subtle and quiet. But friends, let me tell you something. It is no less offensive. Both 
Herod's hostility and oppression are as offensive to the Lord as indifference. See, these people knew the scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They had been waiting for the Messiah to be born. And yet not one of them went to see if indeed the star out of Jacob had come. Not one of them came to see if their true shepherd had been born in Bethlehem. It affirms what the apostle John tells us in John chapter 1. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They're not interested. They're not inquisitive. They are indifferent. And so maybe this morning you don't identify with Herod's hostility. Maybe you identify more with the religious leaders. Jesus just doesn't interest you. He's completely ignorable, and you're just not interested. In other words, when it comes to a Messiah, a Savior, a King, you're going, I'm all set. I'm good on that. Don't miss the opportunity this morning to do some soul work. Maybe your indifference isn't as obvious uh, or as cold as the religious leaders, because, I mean, you're here at least, right? So that says something. But I'd love you to consider where are some areas where you have grown cold to Christ, where you've grown indifferent to his word, where you've grown, um, where he's just become ignorable to you, where you have kind of put him to the side and said, Jesus, I love it when you help me. Like when I feel frenzied, I love calling upon you. But when it comes to the direction of my life, I just love it if you just stayed in the back seat and be quiet. I'd love to just ignore you on that. Where are the areas of his word that when you read them, you go, yeah, I'm just going to skip over that. Don't like it. Don't want to see it. Don't want to be changed by that. I'd just like to be indifferent and pretend like I didn't see it. That's what the chief priests and scribes have done. I don't want to see it. I don't want to be bothered by it. I don't want to be inconvenienced. Because if, if really Messiah has come, there's probably going to be a lot of things that are going to have to change here. And I kind of like the setup we have. Are there areas of your life where you just want to ignore God. That's the indifference of the religious leaders. So the question this morning is, how will you respond to Jesus? Will you be like Herod with fearful, anxiety-ridden hostility? Or will you be like the religious leaders with cold indifference? Or will you respond to Jesus with joyful worship like the Magi? Verse 9, after listening to the king, the Magi went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So their time in Jerusalem has been helpful. Their visit to the king was profitable. They've learned now the location of the, the birth of this shepherd, Messiah King, and they make their way to Bethlehem. And as they do, the star uh, reappears and leads them the rest of the way. And Matthew says, when they saw the star reappear, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's four words there. Two words of joy magnified by um, adjectives. So two times two is four, right, Magdiel? Okay, thank you. He's my math professor. So this is like quadruple joy, and it's indicative of worship. True worship is always uh, comes with a melody of joy. And as the story continues, the Magi go and they find the child with Mary. And what do they do when they see him? The Bible says they fell down. They went prostrate, low to the ground, and they worshiped him. 
What they're doing is ascribing to Jesus the proper dignity and authority that he is due. And they, they get low on the floor as if to say, Jesus, you are worthy and I am not. And then they begin to unload gifts from the caravan, these costly gifts befitting of a king. And all of their gifts point to his ministry as a shepherd, savior, king who will lay down his life for the sheep. I'm not even sure if they realized how all of these would point to his, uh, his life and ministry, but God is superintending all of this. And so the first gift they give him is gold. Why gold? Well, because it's costly. It's precious. It's like gold and royalty just go hand in hand. You know what I mean? And so they give him gold to acknowledge him as the king of kings. The second gift they give him is frankincense. This was an aromatic resin that was used as an incense. It has a sweet smelling aroma and it was used by the priests in the temple. And they also gave him myrrh, which was another aromatic resin that was used um, in, in the ancient Near East as perfumes and incense, medicinal purposes, and also was commonly used to prepare bodies for burial. It's no coincidence then that according to John's gospel, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea brought a 100-pound mixture of myrrh and aloes to wrap Jesus' crucified body. So when you take frankincense and myrrh and you put them together, it points to the reality that Jesus is not only our great high priest who offers a single sacrifice to take away our sins, he himself is that sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, I want you to see that the worship of the Magi uh, was inconvenient for them. They had to get up and go from where they were. It was costly. It was long. Um, it was difficult. It was potentially um, dangerous. And yet something in them stirred them to say, we have to go see this newborn king. They would have had to move things in their schedule they would have to leave the comfort of their home um, to get to him. But this is what it means to worship God. Worshiping God is rarely, if ever, convenient. It should be costly. And you're going to have to rearrange things in your schedule, at the very least, and in your life um, as well. By human reasoning, they are the least likely people in this chapter to want to go and worship the one who has been born king of the Jews. Their determination to find the child stands in stark contrast to Herod and the religious leaders. J.C. Ryle says, the conduct of the wise men is a striking example of faith. They believed in Christ when they had never seen him, but that was not all. They believed in him when the scribes and Pharisees were unbelieving, but that again was not all. They believed in him when they saw him as a little infant on Mary's knee and worshiped him as a king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince him, heard no teaching to persuade him. They saw no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet, when they saw that infant, they believed that they had seen the divine Savior of the world. And they fell down and worshipped him. These men who were far were brought near. God takes initiative to meet them where they are, to lead them to Jesus, speaks to them in a language and a pattern that they could recognize. And for reasons that they themselves might not have even fully understood, they were drawn to him. 
This reminds me of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, when he says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the Magi. Just strangers, pagan outsiders. But now in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christmas then is a reminder that if pagan outsider astrologers from the far east can be brought near to worship Jesus, then so can we. So when you look at your nativity scenes this Christmas season, don't miss the contribution of the Magi. They're not extras. They're not off to the side. They're not kings. But they invite us to repent of our hostility that we often feel as it relates to making Jesus the king of our lives. They remind us to reject the cold indifference of religion. And they invite us into the joyful, costly worship of Jesus. If you remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. You know what the word Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. Isn't it fitting then that the true bread of heaven would be born in the house of bread, the one who came to be the broken bread so that we could eat the bread of life and live? I'll close with some stanzas from We Three Kings. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God in sacrifice. Heaven sings hallelujah, and hallelujah the earth replies. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light.